your hosts, Jeannie Walters and Adam Toporek, are two of the most recognized and respected names in customer experience, and they have dedicated themselves to helping you improve your customer experiences. And now it's time for Adam and Jeannie. One of the things I like most about this podcast, Jeannie, is that we are human-centered. We like to think so. (laughs) We do. (laughs) We can't see any of the humans we actually talk to, but we are human-centered here, and that's what's important. (laughs) We do. We we think about and, you know, talk to them a lot. (laughs) Yes. Are we doing design thinking, though? And that is, do we have human-centered design? What do you think, Jeannie? Or design thinking. Well, they're Um, not the same thing as you're going to learn in this interview. I know. I thought this this is what's so cool because I think this is kind of an a topic that we talk about but we don't explore in depth enough. And so this interview with Jeff, we really do uh, kind of dig into that difference as well as just thinking about innovation and how these things actually work. So it's a really cool discussion. Yeah, we are going past the buzzwords. That's an old saying, Jane. Nicely. Oh, done. Ha- ha- here, Nicely this done. could be a slogan beyond the buzzwords. Oh, that's that's fantastic. We should make that our tagline. <laughs> that should be our tagline. That's it. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Well, Jeannie, why don't you tell us about Jeff? I would be happy to. Jeff Got Health is the principal of GotHealth.co. Jeff helps organizations build better products and executives build the cultures that build better products. He is the co-author of the award-winning book Lean UX and the Harvard Business Review Press book, Sense and Respond. Starting off as a software designer, Jeff now works as a coach, consultant, and keynote speaker, helping companies bridge the gaps between business agility, digital transformation, product management, and human-centered design. Most recently, Jeff co-founded Sense and Respond Press, a publishing house for practical business books for busy executives. Jeff, we're so thrilled you can be here today. Welcome to Crack the Customer Code. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, Well, fantastic to have you, Jeff. And I want to set the stage a bit here at the beginning because being in customer experience, being customer service, we hear terms like design thinking and human-centered design, and they've become in certain circles a little buzz, you know, wordy, if you would forgive the term. But here's the thing. You are actually an expert and have literally written the book on these subjects. So let's dig in. What do these terms actually mean? What do, you know, we get past the hype. How do you define them? And, and these are not only the terms, but these approaches for our listeners. Yeah. So, so in, in, in a lot of ways, they're two, two separate things. There's design thinking and there's human-centered design, but they are very closely related and intertwined. So human-centered design is the process of solving a, a problem for a customer, designing, it's actually designing something for for a customer with the customer in mind. So rather than rather than saying, I'm gonna build you an iPhone, right? It's it's more like, well, what is the what is the challenge that you're trying to solve? And how can I best design something to fit your lifestyle, your context, and your workflow? Design thinking is a a more recent application of the tools and the processes that designers have used for decades to do human-centered design, but applied to solving business problems. And so instead of just taking on a specific, an industrial design or a digital design, we're looking at a, at a problem that an organization or that a customer base has, and we're applying the same tools of understanding the customer, empathizing with them, ideating, validating, prototyping uh, to find out whether or not we are truly building something of value for those people. Now, when you um, talk about design thinking, you know, and you're applying it to sort of a non-design process or 
challenge. Are there limits to that? I mean, do you, can you apply design thinking to, okay, our widgets cost a hundred dollars each and we want our widgets to cost $90 each. You know, can you apply it to those types of sort of uh, financial problems or operational problems? So I think ultimately if there's a problem to solve and you can understand what the causes are, why why the widget costs a hundred and what it, what the compromises you would need to make to make it cost ninety are then you can apply the same level of em- empathetic thinking and approach. Is this is the reduction of cost going to hurt us in some other channel? And if so, what is that, how does that balance out with a ten dollars per widget reduction in cost? So I think that there's if if you can truly put the the the, the change in the experience that the financial decision will make into human-centered terms, you can apply design thinking into that as well. I love that. And I've, I, I think that the whole idea that we have to kind of coin a term and think about uh, human-centered design kind of strikes me as funny in a way, <laughs> because, you know, shouldn't we be doing that? Shouldn't we be thinking of the customer? And, and of course, we spend a lot of time here talking about how important it is to reach out to customers and to get that feedback and to do it on a continuous way in order to deliver a great customer experience. And yet one of the roadblocks I see over and over and over and over and over is that these organizations spend all this time gathering feedback on a, you know, regular basis. And yet they collect the feedback, they have meetings about it, they kind of nod along. Yeah, that's terrible. We really should do something about that. But then they have trouble turning that feedback into action that actually creates a better world for the customers. And so one of the things that you've discussed that I wanted to ask you about was really how to convert insights gained from an experiment into actionable data. And not only that, but actionable data that people will actually do something with that leadership will pay attention to. So so what advice do you have all those you know, CX focused people out there who are thinking, how do I do that? How do I turn insights into that type of action? It's a challenge because the findings that we get from this research, the insights that we get from experimentation often conflict with the opinions of highly paid individuals mm-hmm. in our organizations. Yes. And that's, that's one of the, the biggest roadblocks to acting and implementing these learnings into new customer experiences. The most effective way that I've seen over the years to start to prove that this is actually worthwhile is to mitigate the risk of these changes. So instead of saying, uh, we learn this thing and it means that we now have to change our customer experience completely or we have to take this big 90 degree turn, let's say we learn this thing and we believe that if we, if we adjust it adjust our experience in this particular way, it, it, it might make a difference. It, but in order to, to, to reduce the risk of doing the wrong thing or impacting the business as it currently exists today, we're only going to do that to a fraction of the, of the customer base, right? We're going to, it's a sliver of the population and we're going to measure their behavior once that's there. And if I can prove to you that this has a meaningful impact on their behavior of, of, of this smaller population, then hopefully we can scale it and optimize it. And so reducing the risk of the change, I believe, is key to convincing the organization to act on the insights that we're learning. So even if it disproves them, it disproves them in a smaller way. <laughs> yes, it, it gives them the, it gives them the opportunity to to see for themselves that there yeah. is a better way, and 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 because the impact is is initially small, 
they can begin to to own. Oh yeah, that that seems smart. Let's go and do that, right? And so mm-hmm. that there's a, there's a bit of more of an ownership. Well, I told them to do that now, so I own this transformation. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of that line in uh, my big fat Greek wedding where the woman says the he- the man may be the head of the household, but the woman is the neck. that's right that's right so i have a question uh when you when you talk about the idea of human-centered design you're talking about research understanding what people are trying to do where where is that line how do you balance and i sort of call it the steve jobs line where everything was very human-centered but he was also telling people (laughs) what they needed and creating what they didn't even know they needed you know, as opposed to asking them what they needed. And where does that, how do you sort of balance that line of innovation, the whole, they would ask for a faster horse kind of thing, you know, um, versus actually understanding the customers and using feedback and data to uh, design. So I love the Steve Jobs question. Because there's a lot, I do. I, I get it all the time. It's it's in our book, Sense and Respond. There is literally a paragraph dedicated to the Steve Jobs question because because we get nice. it all we get it all the time. The, look, Steve Jobs talked to customers. He did. He just didn't ask them what they wanted. He just tried to understand what they were trying to achieve and what was getting in their way. That's the key to doing proper research and insights. People will say, I want a faster horse, which is the expressed need. Your job is to understand the latent needs behind that. Well, why do you need a faster horse? Well, because it's really cold and walking the five miles uphill in each direction is going to kill me. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Okay. So what you're trying to do is get from point A to point B without dying. Perfect. Okay. Uh, now, ma- there's a, now that now I know the requirement. Right? There's a thousand. I know. The, I know the problem that I'm trying to solve. There are a thousand ways for me to solve that, and that is where Steve Jobs excelled. Steve Jobs excelled in brilliant, innovative, big, bold, creative ideas to solve these challenges. And because he was the head of the organization, he was willing to roll the future and the stake of the company on these ideas. That's that's the biggest difference. So customers will never tell you, I want an iPod or I want an iPhone. But they will tell you that I'd like to carry music with me and a lot of it so that I can, I can when my mood changes or my activity changes, I can listen to whatever I want whenever I want. Mm-hmm. How you it's su- hard. It- it's hard to go jogging with that big pack of CDs. It certainly was. And they skip all the time. Oh. You know, it's terrible. Yeah. Oh, come on. We, oh. all, we all had the disc man back in the day. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny too. It's like where technology really failed because the improved music technology was actually worse for like activities. Like tape was better. That's like, right. Walkman, to your point, it didn't skip around, all that kind of stuff. Uh, well, you know, Jeannie quoted my big fat Greek wedding, so I'm going to have to quote Monty Python. When you talk about Steve Jobs being the head of the company and doing what he wants, it's good to be the king. It is. <laughs> I'm just saying. It is. For sure. Indeed. Indeed. And well, this leads to another kind of idea that gets tossed around a lot, and that's around innovation. And so many organizations, actually, I was just looking at job descriptions recently because 
if you look at the job descriptions for people in customer experience, they can be anything, literally. Like nobody knows how to write the right job description yet, but almost all of them say, you must be an innovative leader. And then it lists all these things about basically you're just collecting feedback and hoping for the best. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, you said that you are not really a fan of innovation labs because you say they're siloed and don't work. And I think that would be surprising to a lot of people listening. So can you tell us a little bit about how organizations should do this? How should they set themselves up for real innovation? Generally speaking, innovation labs have failed. And you look at at, at the the, the big ones in most companies and they fail. They fail for a variety of reasons. One is because you're hoarding all of the good process, all of the creativity, all of the good ways of working in one particular place. That's that's unfair to the rest of your organization. Why can't the rest of the company work that way? That's one challenge. The other is what happens, and this is where the things really, really break down, is what happens to the ideas that actually do work and do come out of these innovation labs? Where do they go? And what happens to the people who conceived these ideas? That's the biggest challenge. So if I, if I work in an innovation lab, And my team and I come up with a brilliant idea. We feel like we validated a business model around it. And now we want to graduate it. Do we take it back into the parent organization? If we do, who's going to work on it? How do we scale the team? Because the IT organization has a backlog from the floor to the ceiling of work they have to do. And the last thing they care about is the new shiny thing that I invented in my lab. Right. Mm. And so the, the, the trick here is to fit, is, is to have a clear plan as an organization, as a company, about what will happen to the ideas that work. It's easy to kill ideas. That's one. That's one thing. Um, you need uh, patience. If you're going to structure some kind of an innovation practice in your organization, you need patience. Venture capital funds don't return earlier than five years and sometimes between if they do return at all it's five to seven years on a return that's the key phrase if they do return at all right exactly <laughs> yes. if they do, but but five to seven years how many organizations have the patience to wait five to seven years for their innovation labs to return on that investment mm-hmm. and then if they do what happens the key the, the, the most important thing to think about is how are you going to track the mo- attract the most entrepreneurial people inside your organization to your innovation lab because th- those are the people you want in that lab and then what happens when they come up with a good idea do, do they do you spin it off as a new business unit or a product and they become the founding team do they get equity do you roll it back into the organization and give it to the IT department to scale and integrate those are questions that really determine the the loss uh, or the, the success or the failure of the innovation lab in in the experience that i've seen it's the organizations that allow the entrepreneurial teams who came up with the idea to continue on with those ideas out of the innovation lab and give them some level of equity, some piece of ownership in this new thing, succeed the most. I'm not going to tell you they succeed wildly, but they succeed the most. Now, the challenge, of course, then is you have to replenish the staff in the innovation lab, but at least the people who believe in this thing, who have all the momentum and the inertia behind it, the shared understanding and the vision are going with it and they own a piece of it. That's what motivates them. So question, is that have you found that to be true across industries and sort of company age or is this really more of a tech sector sort of VC kind of funded kind of thing? Because I'm, I'm having a hard time imagining that at P&G and things like that. 
like old old line, you know, R and D companies. So, how, where have you seen that be successful? We have not seen it in old line companies. The organizations okay. where we've worked to to bring these into fruition is. Well, there are old line companies that deal with modern technologies. Just to take telcos, for example. Right. right? Telcos have been around 100 years. But the technology they're dealing with today is cutting edge. And they're trying to figure out how to deploy that technology in new and innovative ways because ultimately, all telcos are commodities. They all basically deliver connectivity. And so uh, in those situations, I've seen telcos actually, if you consider them old line companies, which I do, operating in the, the cutting edge technology in order to, to, to create the space for innovation and these new ways of working. Cool. I like that. Yeah. So you almost have to think about a new avenue in order to really innovate from an old line company, which I guess is the yeah, whole point said, of innovation. We, <laughs> yeah. We saw, we saw that at Comcast. Yeah, we did. Jeannie, you know, when we went to Comcast, that was uh, some of the stuff they're doing was you know, extremely cutting edge mm-hmm. and they are obviously, you know, an old established company. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, this has been absolutely great. It it certainly has, and I think I think these are such interesting things to think about. And I know our listeners probably have even more questions and want to learn more. So, where can they find out more about you, Jeff? Um, I'm super easy to find. That's by design. If you go to my website, <laughs> it's it's, it's uh, my website is is jeffgotthealth.com, which is super easy. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn. Please feel free to connect. And I do a lot of blogging on Medium, and I'm on Twitter all the time uh, at the at the Twitter username jboogie, which nice. is a whole other story for another time. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, and uh, keep up the good work with all you're doing. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Thanks, Jeff. Jeannie, do you feel more designed now? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I should be more human-centered now. That's <laughs> I feel like you should be more human-centered too. Isn't that amazing how we- One specific human. <laughs> we, we have aligned, Jeannie. This is what's important for us as partners. <laughs> I think, I mean, it is. it always fascinates me to talk about this stuff and learn more about it because I think as much as we try to come up with solutions around innovation and and designing things for human beings, there's always all this nuance to it. And I thought what he said about specifically innovation labs and better ways to do that work, I thought that was really super interesting. So I hope that all of our listeners are feeling very inspired and innovative right now. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, I did like the innovation labs uh, thing because it's. A, I think it's a little counterintuitive. It's sort of mm-hmm. a little counter to what the trend is right now. And I, yes, I didn't get a chance to ask Jeff, but one of the questions I would have had uh, was, you know, if some of this is just there's some bad innovation labs, in other words. Yeah. The, I mean, I'm sure Jeff knows how to obviously run them and has worked with the great ones. But, uh, you know, I would imagine in some companies uh, that what comes mm-hmm. out of the innovation labs is either innovative and not very realistic <laughs> or not all that innovative. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, well, so that would be I'd love to have a follow up discussion about that and get his take on it. Yeah. Well, and I've seen that even I've seen where sometimes leaders just refuse to really listen beyond themselves. And so they think they're no. innovating, but really they're just, I know, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to burst the bubble. You have ruined you. business <laughs> yeah. for me, Jeannie. <laughs> Some leaders don't listen, Adam. <laughs> you have, You've got to accept the truth. You have ru- I can't handle the truth, Jeannie. <laughs> oh. Oh. All right, well, let's- Well, the in- truth here- <laughs> Let's innovate our way into the closing, Jeannie. The truth here is that we appreciate you listening. 
There you go. Um, thank you so much for listening to Crack the Customer Code. Crack the Customer Code is a proud member of C-Suite Radio, so be sure to check out all the great business content and at csuiteradio.com and csuitetv.com. I'm Jeannie Walters, and you can learn more about me and our journey mapping program, CX training, and keynote speaking at experienceinvestigators.com. And I'm Adam Pork, and you can learn more about me, uh, our keynote speaking, customer service workshops, and training, and other good stuff at customersthatstick.com. Until next time, take care of yourself. And take care of your customers. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.